Welcome. You are listening to The Spiritual Exercises. I'm Rachel Amaday. So glad you are here today. And I am so excited to be bringing you a couple of topics today, kind of a short chat on two different things that I think will help you clarify different sections of Scripture to make them make sense with the rest of Scripture, but also help you in situations where people are using those Scriptures to uphold doctrines that I don't think are biblical, but we're going to dig into that. First, I just wanted to say I had planned to have um, a wonderful woman on the podcast this week with you who is heavily involved in naturopathic health and and just health and wellness. She is a wealth of knowledge and information and help, but of, as it would be, she is struggling with some allergies and illness right now, as are so many people this week. I don't know if y'all have noticed what's been going on with the fires um, kind of in the Midwest, a little bit east of me here in Colorado. So we've got weird stuff going on there where people are reporting a chemical chemical smell, their eyes and ears eyes and ears and nose and throat are hurting and suffering. And so we've got a bunch of people in particular areas who are feeling really bad. And I don't know if some of that stuff is traveling in our direction um, or what, but I feel like so many people I know have been sick and it does not make any sense. This is not the time of the year for that. So uh, you know, just trying to figure out are we just having another round of COVID and COVID isn't seasonal because it keeps remaking itself or I don't know what it is. But folks, it is really important to take care of yourself, take care of your mind, body, spirit, and overall health. You know that I tend to have health and wellness moments on this podcast because I believe that God has a plan for your life. And, you know, when you start really believing that God has made you purposefully and beautifully, that he adores his creation in you and that he desires for you to be able to go and make disciples, um, I think you start to really realize how important it is, how, how important your body is, your spiritual well-being, your psychological well-being, all of those things are really important. And the Bible gives us amazing direction in how to take care of ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So you can go back and check out some of my wellness podcasts, but I will have Ashley on hopefully next week. And so today I just decided let's cover a little bit of ground that I've been in a little bit as of late. Two topics today of interest that I think understanding them is going to really shape how you read some of these Bible stories and how you understand some of the terms. And so we are first going to head into this really interesting part of the Bible that there are actually two moments in Scripture, uh, at least two, that describe God hardening people's hearts. And um, let's go to the most commonly used location in scripture for this concept. It's an exodus in regards to Pharaoh not letting the Hebrew people go, not letting them go out of Egypt, not, not wanting to release them. And the Bible describes God hardening his heart in this regard. Uh, an example here is Exodus 7, 3 through 4. It says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my people, the Israelites. Okay, the same thing happens again as described in Deuteronomy. Israel requests to go peacefully through the land of the king Sihon, but God hardens his heart, and then the king does not allow them to go through the land, despite the Hebrew nation having quite a reputation at that time of being able to take over people and, you know, all these miraculous events that had happened around the Hebrew nation. Um, God has to harden this king's heart in order to force him not to let them peacefully go through the land, which would make the most sense given some of the stories that were circulating about these people. Okay, so basically what you have are these moments in Exodus where, um, and the Old Testament where, you know, the people of Israel uh, are in a dire situation or in a situation where they're, they may have to fight their way out or whatever. God orchestrates their deliverance. God helps them through these processes, but he hardens the hearts of some of the leadership so that he can be um, the one to save them and, and that even more miraculous thing will take place. And the traditional Christian view that I've always heard taught is something, you know, that God hardens their heart. Um, you know, basically kind of violates their free will in this regard. So that God just decides to, for his pleasure, sometimes not allow people to make decisions they would want to make, or, you know, that um, like in Pharaoh's situation, God had to force Pharaoh to do this in order to fulfill all the miracles he wanted to do. But I have a little bit of a different take on these, this idea of God hardening someone's heart. And I want to share it. Um, it's not just my own take. I know Dennis Prager really talks about this at length in some of his writings. Um, this is this is out there, okay? So this is not just my own view. But it really shifted my understanding of these stories. And actually, instead of it being another moment where, you know, maybe a Calvinist would say, see, you know, you know, people don't really have all the free will that you think they do. It's the opposite. It's that God cares so greatly about free will that he does not allow people to be coerced. So we have something interesting in the legal realm, in this country at least, where if it is found that you've signed a document under duress or you've been coerced into some sort of legal situation, that that legal document does not stand. It is not legal. It is not um, considered uh lawful. And so those sorts of documents can basically be canceled because you are not allowed to sign things under duress in this country. Now, why would we do that? Well, because we realize that, you know, if you're a gunpoint or if you're going to lose everything or if someone's threatened your life and you sign a document, it's not really fair to hold you to that standard. That's not right. You need to have your own free will in that decision-making process. And I think a lot of people have said, you know, over the last few years, we've had these discussions about, you know, mandates and that sort of thing. Is it really, uh, are you really engaging in free will if you're going to take someone's job away? Are you really engaging free will if you're going to take someone's travel opportunities away? Are we being coercive and can that legally happen? Should that be lawful? So we should be familiar with this discussion. Why would the word of God, when we believe that is fair and right and just, and we can see that in practice, we believe God is the opposite? 
No, in fact, through these stories, we find that God believes the same thing we do, that no action should be taken under duress or coerced. God is not a fan of this. He wants people to keep their free will. And let me explain how this works out in these stories. So the terminology used is that God hardens their hearts. And yes, harden means to, you know, something severe, something very strict, something they become more severe, right? Basically, what the Bible is describing here is that God God hardens the will of these people. So it was already Pharaoh's will to keep the Hebrew slaves. It was not his will to let them go. And so God, even though he could have coerced Pharaoh into letting the Hebrew slaves go through all of these judgments that were coming upon Egypt, God does not allow Pharaoh to be coerced. He doesn't allow him to sign this document under duress. He hardens the will that Pharaoh already had. Pharaoh's heart was turned against the Lord and turned towards keeping the slaves, and God hardened that will, which is actually very pro-free will. It's the opposite of what we've often been taught about these stories. God doesn't want these people to do things just because he's forced them to. They have a choice. Had Pharaoh's heart turned towards the Lord, we would see a different outcome here. But God's glory was filled through Pharaoh's stubbornness against the Lord and for slavery. And so you can see how that works out. Every time God hardens someone's heart, it's really saying God has hardened their will, what they already will to happen. You know, there is some complexity here, and I do want to bring that up because many of you are going to say, well, God asks us to do things we don't want to do all the time. That's true. That's true. But what is the deeper want? If you have a deep desire to follow the Lord and to do his will and to love him, that deeper want, I would say that deeper will of yours trumps whatever activity that God might be asking you to do that you don't want to do, that he keeps bringing around in your life. A great example of this is healing for people. You know, if you're an addict or you're somebody that struggles with certain addictions, God wants you to be healed and to be free. And it might require some work on your part that's hard to do that you don't feel like doing. But because God loves you and because you love God, you're going to go ahead and do this stuff that feels hard and that you might not want to do in the moment because your deeper will, which is a desire to be a follower of Christ, trumps kind of this surface material will. And I think you can look to stories like the story of Jonah for this type of interaction between God and his people, right? So uh, Jonah is a faithful servant of the Lord, and he loves his work bringing God's word to God's people, and he brittles against the concept of bringing God's word to a wicked people who doesn't that don't follow the Lord, that persecuted the Jews, that were evil. He thinks God is too merciful. This is ridiculous. I don't want to do this. Um, but we know that Jonah was a prophet of the Lord, and he had a deep desire to be in relationship with the Lord. And even when he's arguing with the Lord, funny thing, he's still talking to the Lord, right? He's still in relationship. And so God asks him to do something he doesn't want to do. And God uh, puts really puts him through it because he continues to avoid and avoid and avoid. 
But what is so interesting is the end of Jonah, despite Jonah's bad attitude and despite his um, just pure anger at the Lord for rescuing the Ninevites, he and the Lord are still in conversation. And God is still talking to him, and he is still talking to God. And so what I really believe we're seeing with Jonah is that Jonah's relationship with the Lord trumps even his material anger about the mercifulness of God, which is what I laugh because it's so funny and it's so human. But this doesn't take away from the will that you have. What it's basically saying is God is going to give you what you really, really want. That God can sometimes strengthen what you really, really want. I think um, in the situation with Pharaoh, Pharaoh really, really wanted to keep his slaves and wanted to rebel against the Lord. And God allowed him to do that to its fullest, right? To the very point of breaking. With Jonah, Jonah really, really did want to be a servant of the Lord. He loved that work. And so sometimes in that work, sometimes in that work for you, God's going to ask you to do things that are going to be scary, hard, uncomfortable. You're going to argue with him. You're going to disagree with him. And that's okay. What's amazing about this actually is the amount of free will God allows for you to have. That even in the moments where you're doing things you don't want to do, you can still have that bad attitude like Jonah did. But if you're doing the work, God can still use it. There are so many different types of free will going on in this discussion. And so um, I think that you need to think about free will a little more deeply as you're reading through scripture and not just assume that God is forcing people to do things. I really don't think we're seeing that in scripture time and again. We see this concept of, I have set before you this day life and death, choose life. And that that choice is yours. You today, in the next second, in the next moment, you can choose life. And this is one of the amazing aspects of being made in the image of God. We have the ability to reason and think, logically look at things and make decisions. And we also have the ability to say yes to obedience to the Lord, to say no to obedience to the Lord. And if you're one of God's kids, there's going to be a particular set of things that happen to you based on, you know, those positions. And so... Um, I just wanted to give you that different view of these moments in scripture where God is hardening someone's heart. It does not necessarily mean what we have traditionally been taught. It means, or you may have never been taught on this because these scriptures are so confusing. So I want to give you an explanation that you maybe previously did not have. All right, we're going to move on to our second topic today. We are moving on based on a personal situation I had happen this week that I think is really fascinating. And I have provided for you an image of the tweet that I responded to. I want to read it out loud to you. But I responded to a tweet of um, a doctor of uh, theology, basically, I guess he is. And, you know, I, I will admit, perhaps my response could have been more cleverly worded. But um, let me just tell you what this tweet states. And then I'll tell you my objection to it. And I'll explain to you why I object to this tweet and why uh, I think we have misunderstood what repentance means. And boy, 
if you misunderstand repentance, you have a whole section of your faith that's going to be aligned improperly. It's going to be troublesome for you as you go through the world, because I think a lot of people really believe repentance is this fire and brimstone preacher starts yelling at you about your sin, and then you feel really guilty, and then, you know, you decide, okay, I better say sorry to Jesus and, you know, say sorry to everybody about this. Okay, that is the most simplistic, basic, surface-level view of repentance, and it includes something that I don't believe God wants us to be engaged in a lot. It includes shaming, and I think a lot of people grew up with this idea of these big tent revivals and repentance, you know, being you're sitting there being guilted and shamed, and that somehow it's going to be guilt and shame that bring you into a relationship with the Lord. Um, this is not right. Um, and, and I think we can see it, you know, when we look at the prodigal son story and we look at really the realization, um, the definition of what it means to return to the Lord, what it means to turn towards God mentally and physically, what, what part of you is engaged with that? Is it just that you feel like you're a horrible person or is it that you feel like you want to be part of God's family? We need to have these discussions, but let me read to you the tweet. The tweet posted, there's this popular meme. You may have seen it if you run in Christian circles. He posted a picture of this and the meme says this, Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them to call them to repentance. Now, after we get through the biblical definition of repentance, you're going to understand why this meme actually isn't that problematic in what it's saying. Now, it may have a very targeted approach. It's using terms like inclusive, tolerant, and accepting for a reason um, where they, they're they obviously wanting to target a specific group of people or a specific mindset in the church with the concept that God was calling them to repentance, that he wasn't, um, he wasn't there to approve of their sin, right? That's kind of the point of the meme. Jesus wasn't anywhere to approve of anyone's sin. So logically, okay, I can kind of, I can kind of get behind it. It's not that problematic of a meme to me. So Dr. Kevin M. Young said this, um, first he crossed out the words, Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear. And he crossed out the words to call them to repentance. And he left the words inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them. Okay. And he said this, inclusive, tolerant, and accepting, Jesus ate with them. Full stop. Jesus shared many meals with outsiders, but exactly zero of them were leveraged to rebuke their sin, preach condemnation, or call them to repentance. So um, I argued that this was a slightly biblically illiterate view uh, specifically in regards to what repentance means, what the word repentance is. We're going to dig into that so you can understand why I believe that. People didn't like that I called this Dr. Kevin M. Young out about this, but I truly believe that if you don't understand repentance and you're preaching against Jesus call of repentance to all people, including the sinners that he was eating with, you're missing the point of Jesus coming. <laughs> I mean, you kind of, you've kind of actually made it a pretty classist 
moment, you know, perhaps Jesus only sat down to eat with the sinners because he was hungry. I don't know. Maybe he sat down with them just to piss off the Sadducees, in which case the whole thing was about the Sadducees, which also makes it not about the sinners in front of him. Uh, perhaps you don't think Jesus wanted to call people to himself and build relationships so that they would turn to him. I don't know what sort of ideology gets you to the place where Jesus never leveraged, he says, leveraged a meal to call them to repentance. Uh, I, I guess you, you know, he, he kind of meant he never abused the concept of eating. I, I don't know. Um, but it hardly makes any sense to me that there's any usefulness to this tweet if all he meant to say was when Jesus was eating, he never talked about turning to the Lord. If that's what he meant, it's, in my opinion, a very small-minded tweet. It doesn't really have any relevance. Is that what you're teaching now? Should missionaries not feed people and spread the gospel? Like, is this all just about how we eat together? This is very silly. This is a silly post, if that's what it means. And obviously, it doesn't. You know, that's a disingenuous view of the post. He uses the terms inclusive, tolerant, and accepting for a reason. We're all not stupid. We're not going to play that silly semantics game. He meant to say that Jesus didn't sit down with sinners to ever accuse them of being sinful. Um, but he used the word repentance, and I believe he misused the word. And so we're going to talk about that right now. So the Hebrew Bible sees this idea of repentance, uh, a part of this at least, a big part of it, as teshuva. This is principally they return to God. That's what it means, teshuv. Come, let us return to the Lord. The prophet Hoshea, uh, in, in Hosea 14.2, he tells the people of Israel, let us return to the Lord. It's a return to God. It's turning to him. That's the foundational understanding of the concept of repentance. It's a turning to God. In Psalm 51, King David seeks teshuva for committing adultery with Bathsheba. Importantly, David's confession is addressed to God because, as he says, against you alone I have sinned, have I sinned. And so he realizes he had turned away from God in committing adultery, and now he wants to turn back to God. Um because he realizes that he sinned and he had turned away. So he was walking towards the Lord and suddenly he made a 180 and he's like, I need to turn back around, right? Traditional rabbinical commentators have interpreted this to mean that teshuva requires confessing your sins to God. Part of achieving intimacy with him involves his knowing your sins. And only in that way can you return to him. Isn't this cool? Isn't this interesting? That Jesus first had to know their sins or if they were sinners. And not all the people Jesus at, ate with would I consider sinners, right? Some of them were just outcasts in society. We can't say we know their list of detailed sins, but certainly some of them were sinful. And I think Zacchaeus is a great example of repentance, that God ate with him and he returned the money and returned it with interest and he he turned from his sin, he repented of it, he knew he was wrong. But the very first thing we hear about the concept of repentance is God knows your sins and is willing to engage with you, right? So we see that intimacy happening as Jesus sits and eats with the sinners. He knows who they are. And so who is he pointing them to? Who is he turning them to? What teshuva is happening in that environment? Everything is about the concept of biblical repentance going on in that environment. You just don't know it because your idea of repentance has been twisted and morphed 
um, over the years. And I would say Dr. Kevin Young had the same problem. The idea of repentance has been twisted and morphed. And by the way, turning to God is how you get out of the cages. It's how you leave sin and death. Sin destroys you. It fragments you. It fractures you. It harms you. It hurts you. And God wants you to change. I say it time and again, God loves you right where you are, but he loves you enough not to leave you right where you are. Hallelujah. If God did not come to seek and save the lost, then he came for no reason. Yet scripture tells us exactly why he came. And his purpose in sitting with those sinners was number one, for him to make clear he knew them, he knew their sin, and he desired for them to look to him. Now, so we've got this teshuva word being used in the Old Testament quite a bit. Uh, however, the New Testament usage is most often referenced, um, the word repentance is most often referenced as the word metanoia, or at least it's the most common understanding of the Greek word for repentance. The literal Greek for metanoia means to change one's mind. Here we have many places where we also have the word strepho used in the Greek, which means to turn. It means turning. A good example is Matthew 13, 15. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, strepho, and I would heal them. Okay, that turning does come up in the New Testament again. It comes through this word strepho. It's again, foundationally, we find the Hebrew word teshuva. The word turn there is strepho, right? And it has the same connotation as shuv or teshuva, which is the traditional understanding of repentance from the Old Testament. We have another word used in the Old Testament for repentance, the word necham. It's Hebrew, uh, Hebrew for Christians. By, by the way, Hebrew for Christians, if you're ever looking for some good answers that gives you a lot of, of language and, and really, really good answers on things, I would recommend that website. Hebrew for Christians has a good commentary on the word necham. Um, and it states, and I quote, Therefore the prophet Job uttered, I abhor myself and repent, or necham, in dust and ashes. In the ancient Greek translation of the scriptures, the word necham was usually translated using the word metanoia again. Metanoia is a compound word that comes from two words. One means to think, and one means after or with. The word implies that how we think will affect how we make decisions. And therefore, repentance means acknowledging that we are cognitively mistaken about the nature of reality. For example, that there is a divinely sanctioned moral order and we are guilty of violating that order and in a state of profound alienation until we are divinely reconciled. Our change of mind is also or will lead to a change of heart, end quote. Repentance is a change of mind and heart that turns you to God. From this understanding, we realize that all of Yeshua's ministry was about repentance. It's why John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's why the Bible tells us the ministry of Christ will be about repentance. Repentance doesn't require fire and brimstone sermons or hateful diatribes on sin. Sometimes repentance is a simple acknowledgement that you have been wrong and you are turning to the light. Sometimes it's just seeing the Lord and wanting him above everything else that you've had in the past and to the exclusion of your past life. 
To repent from sin is a profound moment of understanding that your sin hurts God's kingdom and you're ready to change. But repentance is deeper and bigger than that. It encompasses more than just one specific sinful behaviors. It's a position change that makes you desire more of God and less of anything that separates you from him. The very act of eating with sinners was a moment of closeness for them. Closeness for them to, to encounter something they had not encountered before. To a moment of realization that what they previously believed about life and themselves was perhaps filled with errors. They had been cognitively mistaken about how God viewed them. There is no doubt in my mind that Yeshua's work was to call people to this understanding everywhere, not just the religious leaders, but the downtrodden as well. His redemptive work is not limited to the high and almighty, and he certainly did not desire to leave those sinners in their mental cages or physical ones for that matter. To lessen his work among these people is to degrade his very purpose. Was he just there for a meal? He was starving and sitting with, and sitting with sinners fit the bell? Did he do this only to piss off the religious leaders or to teach them a lesson? Was it all just a show? No. Listen, a call to repentance doesn't have to require you yelling at somebody and telling them they're sinful. If you understand the meaning of repentance according to scripture, that is a turning to the Lord, it's a moment of cognitive shift. It's the ability to say, because my mind has changed, my heart has changed, now I'm changed. You will change. Your behavior will change because when your man's mindset changes, your behavior changes. But it repentance can come through all these means, right? And when you're, you see Yeshua sitting with the sinners, was he not providing a complete mindset shift, not only for those sinners sitting with him, but for everyone who observed it? Talk about a shift. Talk about a change in mentality and a change in view of the world. Yeshua's work was always about repentance. And you, you can try to misuse the words inclusive and tolerant and all of that to tell, to tell people that Jesus didn't call sinners to leave their sin behind. But you know what? All the word semantics in the world is not going to change the fact that those people, like Zacchaeus, they were changed. They were changed. They wanted more of Jesus. That's a mindset shift. They wanted him so much that they were willing to leave some things behind. This is just true. And you see this with most of the people Jesus encounters in scripture. They're changed because they have repented. That's what repentance means. So we have to define terms correctly. And even doctors of scripture are possibly misidentifying or understanding what it means to call people back to God, and that it can look a million different ways. You know, sometimes the Lord has rebuked my sin, but sometimes he has come and he has just said, I love you too much. I love you right where you are. I love you so deeply and so dearly. And I am here for you. And sometimes those are the words that change me. Sometimes those are the moments where I'm like, he loves me so much, why would I continue to be hateful towards myself or others? Mm. Repentance, right? So I had this, this event, and I think this event um, actually brought me around to being able to share this with you, to understand that you don't have to go to a fire and brimstone preaching church 
And you don't have to go around banging people over the head about their sin. But what you should understand is that repentance will change people's minds. It will change their hearts. This is actually how we know that someone has truly met the Lord, in, in my opinion, that they have repented. Something has changed in them. Um, and they don't want their past life. They don't want to live the way that they were living previously. They want something better. And they want it from the Lord God Almighty. That means they are facing in his direction. And that is the meaning of Teshuvah. And so, listen, we have to... We have to um, detangle, untangle the lies in doctrine from the truths, right? We've got to get that truth out, pull it out, look at it, say that's the truth. But, you know, there were lies entangled with it over here. Here are the lies. All right. So we've got to do this and we have to do this well. And so I hope that this has been helpful for you to understand a couple of sections of scripture that might previously have been confusing or to help you understand repentance at a more deep level in that it, it might not be what you imagined it was growing up in particular denominations or particular churches. By the way, I am all about calling people to repentance. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, it means that you're willing to go out there and say, if you love the Lord, here's how you obey him. If you'd like to turn back to the Lord, here's what that looks like. There is all good with that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. However, it doesn't have to require shame. It doesn't have to require, again, fire and brimstone. You're going to hell if you don't do this. I mean, Imagine the Lord God Almighty, this loving, incredibly creative, beautiful God. And the only people that come to him are only there because they don't want to go to hell. I mean, yeah, the Bible says, okay, that can work, but that's actually not the ideal. The ideal is that you would fall in love with God and want him and want to be in a marriage relationship with him. And so the the concept that going and telling people you're going to go to hell is going to really endear them and, and, you know, ingratiate them into this loving God who has done so much on their behalf. I don't know. I don't want people to, to love me just because they're scared of me only. Um, what we need is that healthy balance of fear and awe of the authority of God, that he has the power to judge us, but also such adoration to run to him, to want to embrace him, to love him so much that we stand for him in the public squares and we talk about him like David spoke about him. And we just can't wait to talk about him because of how good he is, not because he's going to put people, and by the way, I have a whole series on hell that might freak you out a little bit, but I have a series about hell that isn't exactly mainstream. So you can go listen to that if you want to. But think about that. Think of if it's you. Do you want people coming to you because they really love who you are or because they're terrified you're going to destroy them? I mean, the terror of destruction, okay, come in, let me teach you about myself, sure. But how much more fun is it when somebody runs into you and is so excited to see you and gives you a hug and has a present for you and can't wait to be around you? God is not different than this. We have a wrong-headed view of our Lord and Savior. And actually, when we see him sitting among the sinners, showing them how to engage with him and turn their faces towards him, we understand this. Yes? All right. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Um, I will be back next week with Ashley. I'm very excited to bring her knowledge and wisdom to you all. Till next time.